Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. All you land, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Now, I will turn to 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come before you. You are awesome and worthy of our worship and praise. And please uh, be with our worship that it would be pleasing to you and that you would be glorified. Guide us into all truth, knowledge, and wisdom through the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen. Now, let's uh, turn to our scripture reading, Psalm 95, our Old Testament reading. This goes along with uh, the lesson today about the calling of God. So Psalm 95 is on page 499 in your pew Bible. Oh, come let us Sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are His people, of his, are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, says that Meribah, as on the day of Messiah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We resume our study of the Gospel of Mark. Let me turn in your pew Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And we have just uh, finished earlier a couple weeks ago speaking about uh, Jesus healing the paralytic and, and doing that to prove that he was the son of man as he claimed to be and had the authority to forgive sins so if you turn to your pew bible and page 837 we will see about the calling of Levi and also some questions about fasting. Verse 13, chapter 2 of Mark. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on a little garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May it grow deep roots in our heart through the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom and bless our time here that you would be glorified in your Son's name. Amen. So we have here, uh, once again, after, after Jesus has healed the paralytic, proving that he is God Almighty, telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that very thing uh, through his healing of the paralytic and his authority to forgive sins, which, which only God can claim. Now we move to this calling of Levi. And we see that uh, Jesus left the house in Capernaum and went to the sea, maybe to be alone, but of course that just doesn't seem to happen with our Savior. Uh, he goes to the sea and he has a crowd that follows him. And, and what does he do? Jesus does what he always does. He preaches the gospel, the kingdom of God to them. Repent and believe. This is what he came to do. And it's interesting that, that we notice here that uh, in the last message at the house of Capernaum, that's what he was doing too. There was nothing said about healing until at the end of the passage when, when he healed the paralytic. But he was just there teaching. There was no mention of him healing masses of people as we've read before. And here, preaching at the lakeside, at the sea, once again, this is just about Jesus teaching the mass of people. Scenes that were moving on from him um, as primarily as a miracle worker to, to what he came to do. To preach and teach the kingdom of God. The necessity of trusting in him. So he preaches to the crowd and, and we have nothing else about that other than he, he leaves and, and he's walking by and he sees Levi. Otherwise known as, as Matthew. Mark uh, refers to him as Levi. I think that's because his audience would, if he is, in fact, as we think, maybe talking to more of a Gentile audience, they wouldn't put two and two together that this is a, uh, a person of the tribe of Levi. And, uh, whereas his, his Jewish audience, you know, Matthew appeals more to them. He perhaps changed his name to Matthew 
in his vocation because of what people thought of tax collectors. In fact, as a tax collector, he was excommunicated from the synagogue. He didn't have fellowship with regular Jewish folks. So that's perhaps why we know him as Matthew in, in the other Gospels. And here Mark just isn't that concerned with that. He was born to Levi, and that's what he's going to call him. And, and Jesus is, is, is walking by, and, and what happens? He calls Levi, and he doesn't even think about it. He just gets up, leaves his booth, his tax collector booth, and follows him. This brings us to this, this basic gospel truth. The calling of God. And where does this fit into our understanding of the salvation process? Let's turn to, to Romans 8.28. This gives us a picture more clearly of what has been referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Chapter 8, verse 28 in Romans, we see that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, we also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, those He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. So we see this beautiful golden chain of redemption starting with the foreknowledge of God and, and in predestining uh, before the foundation of the world and eternity past those who would be his and then we see that he, he calls his people in time at a particular place in time and, and then they are uh, the Holy Spirit works in them and we don't know how long this takes with Levi here Maybe it was instantaneous. He may have been a follower already. That's what, what a lot of folks seem to believe, is that he, he had been following Jesus to a certain extent. He certainly probably heard him at his tax booth there. And he was very popular and famous in Capernaum, of course. He'd done a lot of great uh, preaching and works there. And, and the Holy Spirit works in us. Faith and repentance. And we talked about faith last time. Faith is, is the tool. The confession, the Belgic confession tells us that faith is the tool by which we apprehend the works of Christ. And so we're justified and then we're glorified. All at once, the past, the present, and the future are joined in this glorious golden chain of salvation. It is marvelous. And, and I don't know if you want to look at the cannons of Dor. We're going to fire the cannons today, folks. Right at the doctrine of the calling of God so that we can get a deeper understanding of what we are talking about. What is this call of God to those who believe? Article 8, page 95. This is the third and fourth head of doctrines in the cannons of Dor. As many as are called by the gospel are unfeignedly called, for God has most earnestly and truly declared in his word what is acceptable to him, namely that those who are called should come unto him. He also seriously promises rest of soul 
and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. And Article 9 is not the fault of the gospel, nor of Christ offered therein, nor of God who calls men by the gospel and confers upon them various gifts that those who are called by the ministry of the word refuse to come and be converted. The fault lies in themselves, some of whom when called, regardless of their danger, reject the word of life. Others, though they receive it, suffer it not to make a lasting impression on their heart. And that's talking about the general call of God right there. You know, Jesus has been preaching to all sorts of people. They've not all responded in faith. You know, we, we see the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're not responding in faith generally. But the call, the general call, goes out. And then in Article 10, it gives us a picture of the particular call to those who are predestined for salvation by God. Article 10 goes on to say, but that others who are called by the gospel obey the call and are converted is not to be ascribed to the proper exercise of free will, whereby one distinguished himself above others equally furnished with grace, sufficient for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains, that it must be wholly ascribed to God, who, as he has chosen his own from eternity in Christ, so he calls them effectually in time, confers upon them faith and repentance, and rescues them from the power of darkness, and translates them into the kingdom of his Son, that they may show forth the praises of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is... Uh, a wonderful, perfect doctrine of God and it is all about God from beginning to end. And when he calls his people, they respond. When he calls those he has elected and chosen from eternity past, they will respond. Maybe not instantly. Maybe it will take a couple of years. We've all known friends, family, neighbors, co-workers that We've told about Christ for years and and the Holy Spirit is maybe working in them for years, working in them faith and repentance and then and then they respond with those great gifts that God has given them. They respond to that call one day. <coughs> and certainly we see Levi seemingly just at, at once respond to this call. And not only is he responding to the call as a believer in Christ, just think about this. He is, who is Levi? Who is Matthew? He writes the previous gospel. So this excommunicated, devious, wicked tax collector is called by Christ, not just to follow him, but to be an apostle, to write the very first gospel. This is not going to make some people happy that Jesus Christ, who just declared himself to be the Son of Man, is now sitting and reclining with these scuzzballs, these wicked people. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> kind of begs the question, who else can you hang out with though? I mean, he is the Son of God, the Son of Man, Lord God Almighty. He's got no option but to hang out with us filthy sinners. 
And it's just amazing that that Matthew's first instinct is 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 to throw this feast. And all these sinners are around him because, you know, Matthew was excommunicated from the synagogue. You know, polite company wouldn't have him. Um, and so naturally, his friends are other tax collectors and and sinners. And Jesus is the guest of honor, plopped right down there, reclining with them at this feast. And it's this that really draws the ire of the Pharisees, the, the scribes, and especially the scribes of the Pharisees. And they, they saw this and they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? As I said, what other option does he have? But he answers them and says, and this is, was a general proverb of that day, he answers and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, of a physician but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so they're they're all bent out of shape that Jesus is eating with these folks that can't even go to weekly worship and hear the word of God. But what else is he supposed to do? If he's going to reach sinners, and he tells them that you know, he, didn't, he didn't come to heal the righteous. It's the sick that need healing. And, and, and what he's really in effect saying is that I didn't come to, to heal the self-righteous who are settled in their, in their hearts. That's what, that's what we're seeing with the scribes and the Pharisees. They're reminiscent of, of what Psalm 95 was talking about, about the fathers in the wilderness who, who heard the call of God. And yet they died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. These scribes and Pharisees were, were of that generation of people whose hearts were, were hardened and, and, and didn't hear the particular call of Christ. And they were just angry that he would come and hang out with despicable sinners. But they are willfully rejecting the Messiah they pretend to long for and they don't recognize their need, their sickness. They are the sick. And this rejection of Christ and love of themselves and their traditions, the traditions of men, is going to fester and grow in them like a boil. And we'll see it getting worse and worse as we uh, go into the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and and after we see this uh, confrontation with the with the Pharisees, we 
we come again to uh, a question about fasting. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Why are you always eating and drinking, Jesus? What's going on here? How come you don't... You're not pious like we are, Son of God. Why can't you be like us? And it's, it's helpful to remember, folks, of course, that there's only one fast day required in the Old Testament. And that was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and and that was it was required of the covenant people of God to to fast on that day and and and, and repent of uh, their sins for the year. So fasting wasn't uh, a bad thing, and in fact, we see Jesus uh, here later on in other passages seem to assume that you know yeah, fasting's a good part of a daily discipline. But what the Pharisees are saying here, and notice how they're linking John in with this. They're trying to pit John and and Jesus against one another. Satan's always at work trying to pit the people of God against one another. Um, And they're trying to pit, they're saying, not just us, but John. Remember John? Your cousin? They fast too. How come you're not fasting? And their fasting schedule was generally a couple of times a week. And that's wonderful. If you want to fast a couple of times a week, God bless you. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful discipline. But they are making this a prescription of true piety. They are taking this this tradition of men, their fasting schedule, and saying, this is, this is how you look, Jesus. I mean, imagine just the arrogance of telling Jesus, you know, if you really want to be a follower of God, you know, why don't you quit eating and drinking so much? And, and look at what we do. You know, and, and, and Jesus talks later on in the, in the Gospels about <coughs> How uh, when they fast, oh, they they make a parade of it. Oh yeah, they don't they don't cleanse themselves. Their hair is not done. They're dirty and smelly, and and you know they they want you to know. Look, <laughs> we are holy. Not like that, Jesus. And. Uh, Jesus answers them. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And this this is just Jesus trying to remind them remember what your prophet Isaiah said? I will greatly rejoice. This is in chapter 61 of Isaiah, verse 10. We've, we've read chapter 61 before. It's known as the fifth gospel uh, by a lot of folks. It is just so rich with 
with messianic proclamation. And verse 10 gives us a little understanding, a little background to what Jesus is telling them. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So just as God in the Old Testament was the bridegroom and his people the bride, Jesus here is saying, yes, I am here. I am God Almighty, the bridegroom. And, and those that follow me are my, are my bride. And, and what do you do during a wedding celebration? You don't fast. That's silly. You feast. And we have many examples from the beginning of uh, the scriptures to the, the very end of, of God giving feasts for his people and people enjoying themselves and feasting and, and and that's what Jesus is telling them that this is what is going on now I'm not going to be here for long you know in fact this presupposes doesn't it when he tells them that, that there will be a day when they will fast this, this is telling them in a roundabout way that I'm not going to be here long and it, it presupposes Christ's death and burial and uh, of resurrection and, and ascension to the Father. And when that happens, when he is physically removed, then, then they, will, they will fast. They will have a reason to fast. But until then, they'll feast with the Lord of glory, the Son of Man. So, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What's he talking about? What's the old cloth? The old wineskin. Certainly isn't the Old Testament. So what is he talking about? The old cloth and the old wineskins are these traditions of men that they are trying to, to pigeonhole Jesus into. They're trying to squeeze him into these traditions they have made up. You can't put the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ into an old, already expanded and, and broken up wineskin that's, that's it's going to blow it up. You can't put this glorious doctrine of the kingdom of God and everything about it and the salvation of, of, of sinners into these man-made rules about fasting twice a week and doing this and doing that about these Sabbath regulations they made up out of whole cloth 
about all these things that they want the people to do that are not a part of the Old Testament, but things that they have added. The New Covenant, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, cannot be contained in such shabby, worthless containers. It needs new wineskins. It needs the church of God in every city across the world with the people of God worshiping Christ in spirit and in truth, not bound by these silly rules about fasting. A lot of churches have uh, the rules about fasting. They have actual fasting days. I was studying a little bit about one last night. This is common, especially in some of the more ancient uh, churches. Uh, and they want to set up these feast days, and you've got to have fasting days and feast days, and they, they make these traditions binding on their, on their people. And that's just not something that, that works with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those have got to be thrown out. They're worthless. Yep, certainly fasting is a wonderful discipline for the people of God. And if you want to fast once a week, once a month or whatever, if you do it to grow in your faith and to glorify Christ and not make a big parade about it, God bless you. But if you do that and then you look at someone and say, huh, look at that. He didn't fast. Well, proves I'm better than him. Then, then you've entered into the man-made traditions and, and the sin uh, of the scribes and the Pharisees. But we are left here trying to understand what 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 can we do? What what are we learning here? First and foremost, just. As, as the Catechism says, be thankful to God that He still calls His people, that He has called us. And yes, we need to make sure that uh, that our calling is sure, as as Peter says. And that doesn't mean that we lose our salvation, but just make sure that that you know we love to please God. Does our sin make us mourn? Does it hurt us? And do we? Freely repent and turn to Christ and, and make our our calling sure because we love him and want to please him and be and let's just be thankful that he still calls his people. And even more that uh, even as we pray to Christ and sing psalms about him and songs and, and bless his name that uh, that we also are thankful to and improve this thankfulness through a through a changed life. Certainly when Jesus went to Levi and the folks in his house at the feast, he expected them as followers of him to prove their thankfulness and their love for him through a changed life, which is a part of our our thankfulness to Christ. It doesn't add our salvation whatsoever. It's all of Christ. He's working in us to do those good works. 
But we want to adorn our the gospel, as Paul writes in Titus, with with those works that Christ has provided for us from before the beginning of time to walk in. And finally, we we mustn't become Pharisees. We can develop all these wonderful prayer habits, scripture reading habits, and and and, and do all these wonderful disciplines that grow us closer to Christ but the moment we start comparing ourselves we need to repent we need to know that our traditions are our traditions and they are not a rule of faith for others the rule of faith is the word of God that's what we cling to through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you've given us your word to help us understand how you love us and you give us feast. There's going to be a great feast as Revelation 19, 12, 19 tells us of the, of the wedding feast of the Lamb and what a glorious thought that is. And we thank you for that hope and we look to that day. Give us wisdom to live in the power of your Spirit. Help us not to be proud in any way but to trust in you and be a blessing to others. And we pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.